I'll just say right now, I'm Lisa Landy. I'm one of the co-hosts on The Safety View. And I'll talk more about myself in a bit when I kick off my presentation. I'll turn it over to Rosa to introduce herself. Hello, I'm Rosa Carrillo. I'm one of the co-hosts for The View. I'm in Long Beach, California, and I've had a, um, a safety uh, practice since 1989. So uh, I bring a lot of historical background uh, into the picture. And now I'm, uh, I think I'm caught up evolutionary in, in, I'm caught up on the safety evolution. So, but I'm always willing to learn more. Tamara? Hi, my name is Tamara Paris and I'm the um, third host of the Safety View. My biggest role here is usually doing the technical lift at the background, although sometimes I do present. It's a new role for me that Lisa, my friend Lisa and uh, Rosa are encouraging me to take on. And so I thank you for that. And thank you everybody for joining us today. Okay, and let's uh, go through. So Bill, have you introduced yourself as well as you'd like to? Uh, not really. Uh, Bill Nelson uh, retired a few years ago from the NBGL in Houston, Texas. Background, nuclear, aviation, space, oil and gas most recently. Thank you, Bill. How's retirement treating you? Oh, it's real different, especially since I can't go anywhere. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> And uh, Fred, we've met you. Pete, we've now met you. We'll move on to Paul. Hi, uh, Paul Daly is my name. I live in Dublin in Ireland. Um, my background is construction, I suppose, and construction, health and safety, or health, safety, quality, environmental. Um, I was on one of these a few months back, probably. It's been a while. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I'm involved with IOSH just as a, but I'm kind of catching up on all these uh, different uh safety institutions around the world and uh just yeah it's me well it's great uh it's a great time to do that right because we're kind of stuck in home still it's good to Definitely, see you yeah. again Paul. and i yeah. love your accent so please talk a lot today <laughs> tanya good to see you again Hi, so I'm Tanya Hewis. I recognize a lot of you because <laughs> I've I've been doing a lot of the shopping that Paul's been doing and Mike's been doing. So I, you know, we're in a lot of the same networks together. So um, just looking forward to the discussion. <laughs> I'm from Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. Thank you, Tanya. And let's move to Mike. Yeah, I'm Mike Phillips. I live in Chesapeake, Virginia, near Virginia Beach, Virginia. Uh, been in Pulton Paper Manufacturing Safety for about 25 years. So been on a journey to understand resilience and different ways to think about safety for the last couple of years. And I think you're, uh, I really like this platform. So I was on last month, I think it was, and trying yeah. to participate more frequently. Thanks. Nice, thanks. Uh, Jim Marinas. He's still connecting. Uh, okay, let's go to Orhan. Orhan, are you open to uh, audio? Well, he may want to be anonymous. And that's fine. Anonymous. We'll move on. If you'd like to join us, please feel free. And Jim, I'm going to give you another few seconds. And then if you're not uh, coming on, I'll just go ahead with my brief presentation. Why don't okay. you introduce Jim? 
I'll do my best. Jim's awesome. So Jim, uh, Jim Marinas is an HOP, human performance, uh, HPI expert. Um, he's supported a number of industries, worked uh, at many of the Department of Energy laboratories, helping them um, have better safety and more comprehensive safety. And most recently, uh, he has been working in the oil fields in Alaska. And, uh, you know, with what's going on, I think he's been doing more uh, fishing than he has messing with oil. So I don't think I did sufficient introduction, but that's Jim. And he's an amazingly brilliant person and a great friend. Okay, so I'm going to um, actually give a brief uh, presentation to get us started. And as I'm flipping it over, and this is new for me, so bear with me. I will introduce myself. I am Lisa Landy. Um, I'm a doctor of psychology. And um, my specialty used to be in clinical work. I worked with dysfunctional families. And then when I was finishing my PhD, I went to work with industry, thinking I would just make a buck there. And it turns out there is an equal amount of dysfunction within organizations and families. So it was an easy shift and I loved the work. Uh, and then I moved into um, high hazard work. I worked with Los Alamos National Laboratory for 15 years, um, working on the human factors side of the house in organizational development. And that's how the two intertwined. And my um, work with Jim actually broadened my horizons considerably. And it's led us now to the question that I posed today, which is, you know, in the face of all this uncertainty, it's sometimes difficult to determine if uncertainty is a friend or a foe to uh, realizing safety. And so I've been pondering that quite a bit recently and what might be behind it sometimes feeling um, that it is a helpful uh, ally to realizing safety and at times it seems to get in the way. And we've all known this, you know, we've moved to a more systemic view of safety. We know that safety extends beyond technology and the good work of Amy Edmondson and of course our dear friend Rosa and uh, brilliant works that she's done on relational um, factors that that come into play with creating a more comprehensive view of safety. So the socio-tech, um, it's been typically labeled. But you know, for a long time, we had looked at technology as kind of the avenue into managing safety within the organizational enterprise and even into industry in general. And you know, we realized that we were talking about very complicated systems, right? And the difference between a complicated system and a complex system is in the relationships that occur um, either linearly or non-linearly. And so I was kind of thinking, well, could that factor in whether and in some way how we're seeing safety and uncertainty uncertainty differently, maybe within these two systems, and maybe that could be at the heart of some of our challenges within the organization. So I've been doing some research, um, actually looking at some ecologist um, research in journals, 
And I then compared them to technological systems, which is our primary paradigm of managing systems currently in play within industry. And these are linear, they're very complicated as we talked about, but you can always see the relationships between point A and B and A and E. Um, they tend to establish very constant and stable systems with centralized controls of power. And you see how we've even mirrored some of our organizational structures to operate like technological systems. Um, the challenge with that is we as humans are part of an ecological system and these are relational in nature and again I, I point to our good friend Rosa who's been touting the importance of relationships between individuals within organizations but maybe we want to expand <laughs> it and consider relations between everything so these are very complex systems. They're nonlinear, they adapt and they're flexible and that's how they achieve a new state of safety. Uh, they don't always have to return back to a, a, um, a static state of, of performance as we find in the more technical systems. And hence they're sustainable as opposed to efficient, which is what we see in the technological. So, you know, then I looked at, again, safety within this engineering, engineering paradigm, which is what we use in industry. And it's necessary, right? We work with a lot of equipment, especially in these high hazard organizations. Very different from um, an innovative organization. If we're talking high hazard, there's a lot of machinery, a lot of technology a lot of linear A to B uh, approaches to how you manage safety. And our focus on managing safety within that paradigm is to identify and manage risks. We often have focused historically on what can and does go wrong. We like to predict failure by understanding it. So we look back at what's gone wrong and we try and break it down and manage it in component parts, which is great if we're talking about a linear system, it's very achievable. Uh, we apply regulations and controls to manage those linear systems and they typically work very well in a closed system. We detail extensive work procedures in an effort to try and make it fit into an engineering paradigm. And then we go kind of crazy when it doesn't work. And we'll talk more about that in a minute when we shift to the ecological paradigm. And it, within this engineering paradigm, that structure gives us a sense of stability. That equates to safety within this paradigm. Now, Let's compare that and contrast it with an ecological paradigm where we have complex organisms that resile to survive. They adapt when they see that they're running into challenges and they then identify success paths seeking what can and will go right. They navigate around and through risk. They're flexible and agile and their parameters are loose. So safety in this paradigm is about adaptability. And that adaptability is what brings us stability. Thank goodness we can do it because we are a part as humans of the ecological system. 
And now let's talk about resilience. And I don't know how many have been following, you know, the Rosa, Lisa, and Mike, who unfortunately isn't on the call today, and he comes very much, and rightly so, a technological paradigm. But resilience is a different animal in this system where the focus is on efficiency and constancy and predictability. These are fail-safe designs. They cannot fail. And the goal is to maintain that equilibrium in a very steady state. We measure resilience by how well it resists disturbances and how quickly it can return to a steady state. We need this sort of resilience within a technological system. It's necessary and mandatory. And um, the change outcome is to either go back to normal or become a failed system. If we compare that to ecological resilience, it's about persistence to the change of unpredictability. And these are great avenues and environments to do safe to fail designs, to kind of test out the environment and see where we can adapt. And the goal is to allow the organism to recalibrate to a new equilibrium. So we measure resilience in, a, in an ecological system by the magnitude of the disturbance that can be absorbed before the system has to change its structure considerably. All right, and um, the change outcome is you're always creating a new normal. So that goes to Hinson's um, uh, video, which, you know, Tamara, thank you for sharing. It's brilliant. And I like where he's moving. I see opportunity. We can advance that further, but the man is on it. So we'll make sure that link's included. And I urge you all to go there because if we're coming from an ecological system, maybe it's never normal or it's this constant state of being normal. So you know, we talked about VUCA. I introduced this on the last time I led, and that's where we have volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And within a technological system, that's not a great thing because that leads to all kinds of unstable um, systems, unreliable systems. It leads us to feel uncontrolled and a lot of unknowns. Doesn't work well, VUCA, in a technological system. And so the response to that are one of three things. If there is um, VUCA that enters a technological system, there is only a couple of options. We move to a redundant system to take over or a passive system, which is like, you know, protects from greater injury, or we shut the sucker down, right, to protect injury. It's all about risk management. Remember um, the kind of the degrees of freedom, if you will, in a technological system. Now, VUCA within, within an ecological system has many more options. The negative consequences our volatility leads to instability. Uncertainty can lead to anxiety. Complexity leads to confusion. Ambiguity leads to insecurity and doubt. And our resilient nature as organisms are to respond by resilient activity, by demonstrating care and empathy to each other to counter the uncertainty, to get the reassurement we need so that we bolster our systems and bolster our ability to therefore adapt. And the ambiguity is managed by 
upping our awareness and paying greater attention to the subtlety of cues. Now, if we look at this, we're now taking a complicated system and needing to integrate it into a complex. It's not an either or proposition here. I actually don't necessarily agree that we must go from compliance to care. I think we need compliance and care. And that the action that's necessary is to help train all workers on how to better recognize which system they're functioning in so that they can manage the ambiguity, the uncertainty as best they can. And this is what I was trying to explain, by the way, Rosa, to Mike yesterday in the email. So that's my um, kind of introduction to this discussion. And, you know, I'll just kind of throw it out and see, did it stimulate any thoughts or counter positions that somebody would like to offer? People are busy taking notes, Lisa. Thank you. That was very, very clear. I'm glad. In fact, we no longer have any uncertainty, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and we can put the slide deck on the um, Safety Movement Maker group, okay? Thanks. And I'll also put all the references. I, I, I've been doing a heck of a lot of research in preparation for two talks. I'm going to counter it. I used to say it definitively that I'm going to give next week at the IAEA, which is the International Atomic Energy Association out of Vienna. But who knows what the world can bring. So uh, it's kind of humbling to come at things a little bit more open to the unexpected. Mm -hmm. I see Bill has his hand up. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, Lisa, I think that was a great talk. Um, from the technological system point of view, you've obviously said what I think are all the right things. But what I think is really good is when you get into the biological systems and the organizational systems um, and you bring in the ecological metaphor, that is, that is really, really great, I think, because I think it's a great metaphor of what of what we're dealing with and I and I put into the notes I've become more aware of this but hadn't really connected the dots our son-in-law is an ecologist and we have had really interesting discussions uh, talking about both technological and biological things and how everything is connected in both worlds mm -hmm. so this is going to stimulate me to have another discussion with him but, um, you know, everything you said about we cannot depend on predicting all failures, predicting the future. We have to have, you know, identify success paths. And, and in the nuclear world, you know, we have to know what the critical functions are that we're trying to maintain. But I think all these concepts are really good, and I think they translate well across from the technological to the biological to the organizational. So I think, I think your presentation really summarized a lot, of, a lot of excellent ideas that need to be developed further. 
Thanks, Bill. And, you know, as I was putting this together, I realized it's even a greater challenge, uh, this, this opportunity that, that I'm trying to elevate of being in an environment as complex as, let's say, the nuclear industry, where the focus is so greatly and rightly so on the technological safety and helping these individuals within that industry become adroit at going to a more ecological, relational paradigm when they're interacting and motivating people. Do, do you see what I'm saying? I oh, mean, yeah. look at the chasm they have to jump. Sorry, Rosa, please. No, no, I was, I would say, yeah, I can, I, I mean, I've been there, and in fact, there was some conversation about it um, in the chat, uh, and my um, thought is that the technological paradigm is actually limiting nuclear from its ability to, to move forward and maybe solve some of the uh, community concerns that are shutting it down in the U.S., that is so brilliant, Rosa. And you know, with the with the introduction now of these um, the, the the modularized nuclear reactors that are gaining great ground, um, that are much more flexible and adaptable, that can really lead to sustainability goals. It's so critical that that we're able to success. The nuclear industry is able to successfully get the word out. And, and talk about the impact to society mm -hmm. from, from an ecological perspective, to your point. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I've been thinking a lot about, Lisa, is outside of nuclear, is the oil and gas industry, uh, because it's in a lot of turmoil right now, especially uh, with the price of oil. Um, and, and I know Jim's right there in the middle of it. Um, <clears throat> the price of oil down again, and we've been through this before, and how much turmoil it, it creates within uh, uh, the workforce. Uh, and I have uh, never seen that handled well. I think that's a great example of uncertainty. And when I have tried to talk with oil and gas leaders about it, uh, they they don't want to go there. They don't want to go into all of the emotional components of an industry that is on its way to die. It's on its way to die eventually. And wouldn't it be uh, better to work with the workforce, acknowledge these feelings of uncertainty and what's going on in the larger economic environment uh, and so I'm wondering, uh, Jim or Bill, would you comment on that, please? Jim, uh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, Rosa, I have observed that myself. Um, I, I don't really think the oil industry is, is very interested. Is very what? They're not very interested. They're their prime driver is um, revenue. Um, their business model has 75% of their workforce as um, contractors. Uh, they are prepared, they have for, for decades. As soon as there's a, a challenge to the financial 
profitability in the business, they just cut people loose. And um, they have a lot of uh, focus on production, uh, very little focus on a lot of the things that, that we're discussing. Um, they, they bring folks like, like me in uh, as a consultant and they say, oh, that's really interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah. Why don't you go out and, and learn for us? And um, you can help us be better at what we do. What they don't get is that it, in many cases, is, is their problem. It's an executive issue. It's not a workforce issue. And um, they're not really cued in to bringing this all together using Lisa's term ecologically. They're just not there. You know, Jim, they're going to, they're going to find themselves in a position they have to. And this is another advantage, if, again, if you haven't seen Peter Hinson's video, he does an excellent job of talking about how industries that have been on the out are coming back as phoenixes, that they've recreated themselves in light of the shifting dynamics right now. And boy, if there's any time where oil and gas needs to do that or become obsolete, it's now. And I'm anticipating that the only way they can make that shift is to come out of the technological paradigm and be adaptive. Because if they don't, they will become obsolete. They're a dead system. So it's interesting to watch. It's interesting to see what happens. Bill, go ahead. Well, now you're bringing in another really interesting uh, idea, and that is at the industry level. And this is something I've reflected on quite a bit, um, because for whatever reason, I've had a front row seat in industry responses to very crisis situations. Um, on three major occasions. First was in the middle of the nuclear industry response to Three Mile Island. The second, I was working for NASA on on-orbit risk management when the Columbia accident occurred. And then, of course, finally, being in the midst of uh, working with BP and Shell and Transocean after Deepwater Horizon and subsequently the crash of the oil price. And it's very interesting to, to think about and compare. I don't have any real great conclusions at, at the high level, but how these industries responded to these crisis situations. And the, the thing that always comes to my mind is after Three Mile Island, the nuclear industry took joint responsibility for dealing with the, the crisis, and that included the regulator, because everyone realized that they were all in it together, and if they didn't solve the problem, the industry would be, would be dead. Mm -hmm. And I compare that to the oil industry response to Deepwater Horizon, and at least from my observation, the typical response was, well, 
Transocean and BP screwed up. We would never do anything like that. So that's their yeah. problem. At least that was my perception of it. Just a totally different thing. And, and of course, that's an overgeneralization. And there have been great industry efforts in the oil industry. But at, at a company level, that was kind of the, the knee-jerk response, at least in the early days. That, that, that was them. We would never allow that to happen. Isn't I agree that with that. Oh, go, please, go ahead. No, I was just going to say I agree, Bill. And um, there, there are forces that uh, oil really doesn't have to contend with uh, because there is so much money in this business. Um, they can just ignore things, and they do. <coughs> yeah, and they, they consider themselves competitors. They don't consider themselves on the on the same team because they operate in their own markets they're competitors rather than collaborators whereas at least in the old days and pretty much to the, to, to today nuclear nuclear generators have their own service area so they're not per se competing against each other well it kind of begs the question will this incredible level of uncertainty that's going on you know even with the the fires the earthquakes the explosion in beirut it's just one crisis on top of another crisis whether man-made or you know biological um it it's very curious to see if they will retain their kind of you know, traditional approach to business as usual, or if this amount of uncertainty and VUCA is enough for them to recognize they operate in an ecological system. I'm hopeful it will. Tanya, are you there still? Because I'm curious what yes, you're she's saying. There. Take yourself off mute, Tanya. <laughs> Tanya, you're, there you go. Okay, so I guess a couple of things I wanted to, to say. Um, once upon a time, Love Canal was a, was a really big thing. And it was all this chemical dumping into rivers. Peter Sandman is a risk communication expert. And he has a, a, a website that is a gift to the world. He seems to have recorded almost every speech he's done. He's blogged a lot. Um, I mean, he's going to have to slow down, I think, because he's not getting any younger. But, you know, he, he has a, a wealth of, of wisdom to share. And he recounts in one of the trainings that I had uh, watched um, circa 19, I don't know, from the hairstyles, 84 kind of thing, <laughs> um, that uh, you know, similar to, I guess, some of the charges against Walmart and Amazon and things today, he sat there with the CEO of, of a company who, you know, had, uh, you know, a whole bunch of pickets outside the door and, you know, that had horrible community relations. And, you know, Peter Sandman said, look, we know, we know how to do this. This is an evidence-based approach. What you need to do is, number one, apologize. 
Number two, allow the community to come to the table to be able to express their value system. Three, start working as a team, as a community together. You're just part of the community. And he said, basically, no fucking way. I can't do that. I can't, I cannot sit down with those people. The, the them, you know, there was, there was this extraordinary, you know, tension between the, the stupid people outside picketing and my company and my shareholders. I can't do that. I will pay the fine. Go to the EPA and tell them I'll pay the fine. I'll, I'll bankrupt the company if I have to. I won't do that. And that was like circa 1984, I'm guessing. Yeah. So how far have we come, really? You know, I don't know. I mean, uh, one, one uh, another anecdote that's worth sharing is, um, like I have been talking about uh, risk assessments. So have a whole lot of other people. And James McPherson has been pretty uh, upfront about it, putting uh, YouTube videos saying that risk assessments are a conversation. They're not a table They're of numbers. They are a way to start engaging in what is important kind of thing. And I have been saying, echoing Todd Conklin, that when you start to get into incomprehensible consequences, uh, the way that a lot of these risk tables go is to just put a, a, an infinitesimal probability, you know, so that this equates out to will never happen. So I have been trying to advocate if, if you see yourself going that way, basically what you're doing is saying, we don't care about this. You're, you're faking a number in order to be able to make sure that you don't have to care. If there is an, in, a consequence that you've identified that you can't live with, explosion of your plant, having, you know, uh, whatever, you know, uh, waste effluent down the river so that your community is going to be uh, protesting, whatever you're in, whatever your consequence is, if you can't live with it, then put the probability to one. Don't play the numbers game with it. If it is an incomprehensible thing, and I, and I remember saying this on um, one of Ron's talks earlier this uh, pandemic, and I can remember one of the guys saying, are you crazy? Like, do you know what that would do? And I'm like, okay. Andrew Blackie gave us a presentation who had done an air investigation of an air show that didn't go well in the UK. And there were a number of reasons for it, but he pulled out the risk assessment and sure enough, what happened was identified more or less in the risk assessment and they probabilized it away, basically saying, we don't care. And he's, well, now there are no more air shows in the UK. After that, just didn't happen, you know? So if you don't want to deal with it, then fine, you might antiquate yourself out of existence anyway. You know, like that's, th those are some of the things that I've been thinking. When you were talking about um, uh, Deepwater Horizon, I don't know how many of you are aware of Naj Mishkadi. He's a wonderful person. Um, and he was on, he was pulled in because he's a cultural uh, expert. 
And he said on the official report that the, uh, I don't remember anymore, maybe it was even the National Academy of Sciences, I don't remember the report, so please forgive me on that one. But he had to fight tooth and nail. He put his entire reputation on the line um, in order to get cultural factors into that report. Otherwise, it would have been just a technical report of everything going wrong with valves and, and pumps and, and things like that. He had to, he did everything he, he could. As I said, he you know, put his reputation on the line to get that cultural thing into the official report in the, in the upfront sections of it. Because there was such reluctance to understand that there, there is a huge aspect of how people relate to each other that leads to all sorts of bad things that we've seen, you know, but they can lead to good things too. We just, but we're not, we're not showing that part of the, the equation often in these discussions. Anya, I, I just, I want to respond because I'm going to lose this if I don't. I think what you're describing highlights beautifully how it has failed us organizationally and societally to take a technological paradigm of linear relationships and apply it to ecological nonlinear relationships. And I'm watching the chat go by, and as you were talking risk assessment, that is a linear technological approach to managing risk. If we talk about it in ecological formatting, we look at it as sense-making. Where do we have the relationships and what factors are at play and how are they nuanced, right? Technological systems want to take out uncertainty from their equation. It's controllable. You can't do that in an ecological, so we need a different way to talk about risk, right? And maybe sense-making is it. And Rosa, were you the one who had commented on sense-making here, you and Bill? Yeah, Bill, Bill and I were, were talking about the conversation. I said, yes, it's also sense-making. Uh, but I, I just love Carl Wake, uh, is it Week or Wake? Weeks, you know who I'm talking about, yes. the great sense-maker, yes. uh, Carl. Um, he, he wrote something that really caught my attention, which is, it had, was about doctors who didn't recognize child abuse. Like the child would come in, obviously it, they would, the, the usual, you know, he fell down the stairs when it was obvious that the child had not fallen down the stairs, but they didn't, uh, they, they didn't recognize it uh, until social workers were brought in who began to point out uh, the, uh, where the data didn't fit. And so the conclusion was that the doctors were not able to see that which they did not know how to handle. They didn't have an answer, so they couldn't see it. Uh, and so I think that's where we are as human beings. Most of us don't know how to deal with all of these feelings of loss, of fear. I'm losing my livelihood, my fam you know, what's gonna happen to my family? Uh, meanwhile, the oil, uh, the, the oil executives have nothing to fear because if the oil industry were to go down, uh, 
I have all, my, all the money I need. And I'm not even going to try to deal with the fact, with, you know, what's going on with the population, because basically I don't even care it's noise. if the industry yeah. disappears, right? I think that's what I'm understanding from what well, Jim and Bill are saying. So, so we have that, uh, I see Tamara, uh, <laughs> what are you trying to say, Tamara? Well, I, I want to, you know, I've been doing some um, readings on um, the concept of empathy in our society. And I, if you remember back, Rosa, when we started talking about um, social systems, right, in our society, in safety, in organizations, and how do these all play a role. And we talked about building trust, um, which was right into what you discuss in your book, Relationship Building. And one of the, the other things I've been trying to add, think about and add to the puzzle to make somebody an authentic person is their care for others, as Eric was talking to us about the kindness. And the more I've been doing some research, I've also been understanding that empathy has actually been declining in our societies since the late 1900s and early 2000s. And so I just want to put that out to the group is how does something like that start playing a role when we're losing that kind of natural human impulse towards one another? That's a great point. And, you know, Tamara, that actually correlates to when industry really boomed and the whole technological paradigm started to drive everything, including relationships. I really liked when Rosa was just describing the inability yeah. within a technological system to see cues outside of the box. Yeah, yeah. And, and so Rosa, how would that impact leadership relations? Yeah, well, that's, that's the, uh, I, I you to address it to everyone because we are all faced with the same dilemma and that is that we cannot change anything ourselves, that we have to be allies with people who have power, uh, the actual power and the uh, resources who have control over the money in order to create change. Uh, and I, I see that address very seldom uh, in the safety literature that uh, power and politics are, that's what rules the organization. So then what can we as practitioners do uh, in the face of that? And I see Bill raising your hand, but you're muted, Bill, so you have to unmute yourself. <clears throat> Bill, you have to unmute yourself. Unmute. <laughs> we go. I, I know sign language too. <laughs> <laughs> um. Now, when we talk about empathy, and we also talk about companies and, and industries not responding and taking responsibility for things that happen, I have a real counterexample. Um, my company and I worked with the Enbridge Pipeline Company in response to a huge leak accident in Michigan, where the pipeline leaked for hours without them being aware of it. They had the official incident investigation with the usual stuff, and then they brought us in to say, okay, now what do we do about this? And I have never seen a better example of a company taking responsibility. They wanted to know everything about what they had done wrong. Um, 
we used kind of the critical function and success path approach to say, okay, here's the functions you should maintain and how to do it. Um, they liked the result of that. And then they asked us to uh, develop a human factors training program for the entire company. And this was at the direction of the CEO. So it went all the way to the top. And we said, okay, that's great. What case studies do you want us to put into the training program? You know, we can do the typical thing of major, you know, space or aviation or something, just generic case studies. And they said, no, we want you to use our own incidents so that our people will understand what we have done wrong and how we can do better which made it harder for us because that meant that we had to get the case studies exactly right because we were presenting them to the people who were involved. And so that, that management from the top down just said, okay, we will take responsibility for that. And in fact, to top it all off, they took, they took that piece of pipeline that ruptured and they made custom-made rings for every new employee and every existing employee that they give with a little booklet that says, this is a piece of that pipeline that broke. Put this on your desk and let it remind you, we are not gonna let this happen again. Mm -hmm. And nice. you know, to me, that was an outstanding example of taking responsibility and leadership in this kind of a situation. Incredible accountability. Jim wanted to say something. Jim? Jim, you're on. I didn't, mm -hmm. I, I didn't want to leave with such a, a negative representation of oil. Uh, my experience working with ConocoPhillips up here in Alaska is that the most successful approach in helping them understand the need to have much better conversations across the organization was to help them break down some notable successes and in the discussion of those successes show how it was the conversations and the relationships that made them successful. That's great, Jim. And the, uh, the industry is, is recognizing the need to go in that direction. And uh, there are folks that are embracing that. So it's not all negative. What are the signs that you see, Jim, on that the industry is embracing? They're calling folks like me in to consult. They're asking for information on the human aspects of the, the technological systems operation and the interrelationships. And they're, they're recognizing that Complexity is, is emergent, and the only way to deal with emergence is through the human side of the business. They can't do it with the technology. So they're and willing what to level hear. is calling you in, Jim? What level of the organization is calling for this knowledge? Um, mostly the safety and health side of the business, and it's because folks like um, Todd and Tony and you, Rosa, and, and, and others are encouraging a much 
broader understanding at the executive level of the, the human contribution to success. Yay, safety and health. <laughs> yeah. Jim, I will second that entirely because uh, my experience in working with BP and then Transocean and Shell after Deepwater Horizon was very much a, we want to take responsibility for this. We want to do things better. And that evolved into a 15 organization joint industry project on the topic of success paths. We talk about level of the organization. Um, that required involvement uh, at a very high level. And we also had Bessie involved as a as a partner in that in that discussion and it was a wonderful set of workshops where we worked together and worked together to develop example success paths for critical operations the problem came comes and hopefully the learning took effect and in our closeout meeting there were companies that said yeah we are already acting on this and, and it's, of course, a human thing. You have to consider the human to know what your success paths are. Um, the problem was at the industry level, the economics didn't sustain it. About the time we were ready to really move forward, the oil price crashed and things kind of came apart. But I'm hoping that in individual companies, the, the learnings were taken into effect. I just wanted to add a comment before we wrap up. The, the, it's my impression that any effort that's really successful within an organization starts at the top. And if you don't have the people at the top engaged in that process, then it's, then it's compartmentalized and it never really gets integrated into the organization. And fully integrated into the organization means taking a look at the culture and from my experience in, in visiting with people and looking at, at organizations is that, that how culture is managed is really misunderstood. That there's a relationship between the environment that the uh, organization operates within and that helps drive the culture, but you can't just drive the culture with, with words and, and signs and, and things. And then one other thing that kind of occurred to me that uh, I've been bouncing around for, for quite some time and uh, particularly relative to safety discussions is the idea of using the word safety itself. To me, it seems that safety is only relative in the past tense. There's not, it's not a current situation. It's not a, a predictable situation going forward. There are too many factors that impact it. And I wonder about the idea of, of uh, having a safety program within a company already compartmentalizes that mm -hmm. to some degree and it makes it problematic as to whether you can integrate uh, that line of thinking throughout the organization. Fred, that's, please go. Oh, just, uh, those are just some ideas I wanted to toss out to the group. Fred, your timing is incredible. I was listening to Hal Nagel this morning, and he was introducing and talking about his new book called Senesis, which is kind of an integration of all. Um, and he also doesn't believe safety is the appropriate word. It's really about work and understanding the work. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, taking all of the integrations of 
the technological and the ecological together. And the other thing that you had mentioned is if the upper management isn't really invested, it's hard to really make a change. It's interesting to note that companies that are coming from a more ecological, decentralized power base are much more agile, retain employees, um, employees stay more focused because they feel a value. They've given the power back to the individual entities and they tend to associate with true numbers of safety. So it's a very interesting. Uh, I think we're about out of time. Just quickly, I'd like to say uh, it would be interesting to continue this conversation thinking pragmatically on how we, from our various positions, encourage and support the integrated model approach in, um, in helping organizations use uncertainty to their best benefit. Uh, and I thank you for listening today. Um, love to hear further comments uh, as they come up or thoughts that you have. Rosa, Tamara? Yes, uh, I want to go back to Fred's provocative thought um, that if we stop thinking about the, ac the, the accident prevention um, in the past, you know, and, and say it again, Fred, we stop thinking about it as a past event. Safety is only relevant in the past from my perspective. Okay, so uh, when you say safety, are you talking about accident prevention or the, or the term safety as a function? Well, you can only verify that you were safe by having been safe, but you can't verify it going forward. And we're trying to use the same tools from the past and in, in the present and the future? Well, I think that uh, it's a, a bit of a dodge for organizations to say they have a safety culture or that their operation is safe. They don't really know. They're, they're managing risk to some degree, but they don't really know at any given time whether it's really safe. Great, great point. Thank you. Very provocative. Yep, go ahead, Tonya. I'll just give you one example. Um, Southwest Airlines is what Pat Lencioni says um, embraces organizational health like no other company. He said they had an executive boardroom meeting and they saw a car pull in from the parking lot. They got out of their meeting, saw the, the, the so he fell down, the, this employee had fallen down the stairs at home or something like that and had broken his leg. He came in in crutches, they lined the hallway celebrating. Yay, Bill, I'm glad to see you. So happy you're well. So I'm so happy that you're here. That's, that's what organizational health can look like. This is what culture should be celebrated in our companies. This is how we need to get relationships back into our organization. Thank you, Tanya. Yay, Tanya. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that last thought, Tanya. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Um, thank you, Lisa, for an amazing discussion. That was really great. I think that got us all really thinking. That was awesome. Um, I do want to share with everybody, and I put the link in the chat, 
that um, we're going to be doing some um, readings on empathy in the Facebook. Um, we're going to be looking at the end of empathy article and I put that in the chat and I'll send it to everybody through um, email. That'll be 1130 a.m. Eastern Time on Saturday. Just something a little different. Get us away from Netflix and the TV and kind of talk about reading. Rosa, you and I were looking at also having an author join us. Yes. In mid-September. Clive. Clive Lloyd. Mm -hmm. Talking about uh, trust and psychological safety. Very important. Yeah. And so... Um, now, what book of his, what what book of his are we doing? Um, I think it's called the Next Generation Leader. Safety yeah, the Leader. Mm -hmm. Next Generation Safety Leadership from Compliance to Care. So again, it kind of goes along the theme that we're we're talking about. Has anybody here read Clive's book? Moi, am I the only one? You the only oh. one? Oh no. Okay, well, um, I'll be sending out some information so if people want to join that and we'll be recording that so you can hear it also. We're going to try to invite some people who've also read his book and done some reviews and then put Clive in the hot seat. So you might just want to come for that, you know, just to ask him some questions. Um, and I did also want to share with people, you know, please, um, we're doing a free conference in October, the Safety Connect Conference. Safetypedia is putting it on. It doesn't cost anything for attendees to join. It's online. It's virtual. Um, we've got Rosa speaking. We've got a lot of different people speaking there. It's going to be awesome. I put the link in the, the chat box. Um, so I really encourage people to come and join us. It's gonna be really phenomenal. And also, if you're interested in this, um, we're gonna have an interesting VIP session using VR technology. And how may we be able to apply that to health and safety training, especially with big organizations. And we're doing a draw on that actually tomorrow. So if you sign up today, you'll be, um, in, entered into that if that's of interest to you and your company an opportunity there um, and you'll get an ocular headset sent to your house to use for the session and and if you win the draw then there's um, 10 people that can win it so wow. there's quite yeah there's quite a good um, opportunity um, so did anybody have any last things they wanted to make an announcement before we sign off today I guess not. I guess not. And you know, if you have events or things going on, you know, remember this is informal. This is an opportunity to have other people. If you found another group that's discussing something, you think, hey, I want to share it with the people on the safety view, please, by all means, speak up or put it in the chat. So yeah, thank you everybody for joining us. It was a great session. Yes, and thank you, Lisa. All thank right. You. Thank you, Lisa. Thank I you. agree. Thank you, Lisa. Excellent. Thank you. Good to see you, Jim.